Thank you for joining for this episode of the Techspective podcast. My guest is Kate Burkhart. So Kate, if you want to introduce yourself, give a little bit of background. Absolutely. Yeah, my name is Kate. I'm a VP on the investment team at YL Ventures. So we're a venture capital firm that invests in early stage cybersecurity companies, specifically with entrepreneurs out of Israel. So the thesis is really to connect the top tier cybersecurity talent in Israel with the largest market for cybersecurity solutions, the United States. So I'm based here in New York, and my role is split between both diligence of new investments and also hands-on support to our existing portfolio companies in areas like go-to-market strategy, business development, leadership hiring, marketing, follow-on fundraising, et cetera. So thanks for having me. My pleasure. Um, so you said you're in you're you're in New York. I was gonna say like I, I've noticed and I've actually I've worked with and for some of these companies directly. Um, but I've noticed that uh, Boston is sort of the East Coast Silicon Valley for Israeli cybersecurity startups. Like <laughs> there's a number of companies that are, you know, quote unquote headquartered in, in Boston, but are actually Israeli startups. Yeah, there is definitely a center of gravity for Israeli startups in Boston, um, particularly those focused on markets like higher education or healthcare. Um, but in New York as well, I'd say increasing, particularly if you're looking at customers in financial services, this is a great place to be, or media. Um, I think it's all about sort of, as a CEO, being as close to your end customer as, as humanly possible. So both definitely um, big markets for that. Okay. Um so one of the things I wanted to start off with, and and I think because of your role and the and the companies you work with, I think you'd have, I, I assume you'd have great insight on this. For years and years now, we've been talking about the cybersecurity skills gap. I mean, it's a persistent headline. Almost every single conversation about cybersecurity starts off with there's a cybersecurity skills gap, and there's these millions of jobs that are unfilled, and it's this massive sky is falling tragedy that you know we're we're, we're going to face more recently i've seen very direct pushback in fact there's been a, like an ongoing uh like just this week and, and, and in the last month um conversation going on on linkedin and other forums where uh you know one per, a friend of mine ben rothke uh wrote wrote an article digging into some of those numbers and said well you know what this is not this is not a scientific number. This is not an actual statistical number. This is like everyone keeps quoting these numbers, but you can't actually validate where that number even came from. It's just one organization said there's going to be three million jobs or whatever, uh, and everyone's been using the number. Um, and and I think when I look at all of the layoffs that have happened, you know, given the you know the current economy you know, all, all 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 the layoffs that have happened of cybersecurity professionals and all of the people who i know who are on linkedin looking for jobs fighting for positions it's like those two things don't jive like you can't tell me there's there's a cybersecurity skill shortage and millions of unfilled jobs while tens of thousands of people can't find jobs so i guess you know in, in, in the 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 end result of that all all of my rant there is simply what's your perspective on this is there a cyber cybersecurity skills shortage or is that just a myth 
Yeah, so to your point um, about recent market conditions, certainly the broader macroeconomic environment is going to have an impact on companies' abilities to hire, just in terms of all positions across the company, right? And so we have seen, I would say, more and more um, security folks in our networks who are open to work, who are changing jobs. Um, but I'd also say there's there's definitely um, open roles out there. And I think that a lot of folks with skills in these areas are in high demand. So typically we find that folks are landing in a relatively sort of short amount of time. And we work with some great recruiters who can help place folks based on their experience and um, and sort of the wide realm of options for cybersecurity is pretty interesting, right? CISOs in various industries, or maybe you'd like to join a startup and sort of try try that hat on for a while, or perhaps you'd like to go to a, a nonprofit institution like a SANS or um, other great organizations out there. There are, I think, enough um, permutations that we find folks are, are landing. Um, and those skills will always be in high demand, you know, growing areas, uh, like cyber like within cybersecurity um, that require more talent, I think it'll only be a growing need. So, you know, I'm pretty positive about it. I think that, of course, there's short-term sort of um, ways perhaps to ride out and, and you know, maybe flat budgets um, over the past few months. But um, I'm, I'm pretty hopeful and confident. And based on the, the great folks that we work with, we find that the folks are landing pretty safely. Well, and I, I will also kind of throw out the caveat that uh, it's it, it, it's painting with a very broad brush in the first place because, you know, to, to just say, well, there's millions of cybersecurity openings. It's like, well, okay, what does that mean? Like, <laughs> are we talking about entry-level, you know, SOC analyst? Are we talking about, you know, DevOps engineer? Like, like what, what, what level, like there, there's very broad range of, 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 roles and skills involved in the, you know, industry, um, you know, and, and so like to your point, I think, you know, there are very, you know, there are, there are definitely uh, positions that require more skill, more in-depth knowledge that maybe there is a shortage of people who have the, the right skills and knowledge to fill those roles. Um, but that's slightly different than saying, oh, but we've got, you know, tens of thousands or millions of, of, of these open roles. Um, and I think, you know, two, two, two other kind of quick thoughts on that. One is that I, I, I think another issue that comes into play, uh, you know, your, your point is, was, was very good about given the, given the market conditions. Yes. A lot of people have been laid off and, you know, you might think, oh, well, if there's all these openings, shouldn't they just be snatched right up? It's like, well, maybe, but, the same economic conditions that caused the companies to lay lay people off also makes it hard to hire. You know, they didn't just turn around and just hire people back to fill those same positions. Um, but also, job descriptions are a problem. Um, you know, like a, a lot of times, you know, you, you'll, you'll you'll I mean, I, I'm, this is not uh, profound. I think everyone knows this in the cybersecurity industry. But you know, you'll see job descriptions that just ask for things that are just unreasonable like you can't say we're hiring for an entry-level role that requires five years of experience in xyz um and uh you know what was the other thing oh the other thing i was going to say when it comes to trying to calculate the number of openings one of the issue one of the things i've noticed is 
and there, there's one particular role. I'm not going to name the company, but there's a particular role that I saw recently, and, and I, I know that others do this, but it's a remote role. So there's a company that's hiring to fill a role. It's remote. And, but if you go look on LinkedIn jobs, that same job is listed like 70 times because it says it's like we're hiring for this role in New York, parentheses, remote. In Boston, parentheses remote. In Dallas, parentheses remote. It's only one role, you know, but it's listed 70 times. Um, and so I think that inflates some of the, you know, if you just if you just went out and did a, a kind of a broad search on, on LinkedIn, you said, how many jobs are there? And it says, oh, well, there's 150,000. It's like, are there or are there like 10,000? Yeah, no, that, that certainly makes sense. Um, certainly makes sense in theory. And I think, you know, I do think that the job description piece that you flagged is also interesting. Um, and I think there's a lot of opportunity. I mean, everyone wants to talk about Gen AI and LLMs, um, but this is just another tool in the toolbox that I think workers across industries, including in cybersecurity, will start to fold into their daily lives and jobs. And so whether it's bringing that, whether it's developing a new skill set um, and bringing that to a new role or um, you know, learning yourself, you know, within your day to day about how to employ these new these new tools. Um, all of that, in my opinion, only provides more opportunity um, to really add value. Um, so so, yeah, I think it's it's certainly interesting. It's not a new problem. Um, it's not a new topic, but uh, but definitely mixed signals. Right. On the a on, on the AI there. And yeah, I, I think I've, I've said this a few times now, so at some point I'm just going to have to claim it as my own. But I, I overheard someone at a conference. I can't give him attribution for the comment because I don't know who he was. I just overheard it. Um, but it was brilliant. So, you know, by the way, person, if you're out there, feel free to contact me and let me know you're the one that said it and I'll give you credit. But um, I overheard someone say, that you know, everyone's worried about AI is going to take your job. And he said, it's not that AI is going to take your job. It's that someone who knows how to use AI is going to take your job. And I was like, that's brilliant. That's perfect. Because it does come down to that. It's like, it's not that AI is going to replace everyone. But if you know how to leverage it to streamline, you know, it basically becomes a force multiplier for your for yourself as a, you know, in terms of your own productivity. So it's like, yes, if, if I know how to use AI better than you, I'm going to get the job. Um, okay, well, let's move on. Let's talk about, uh, let's talk about ransomware. So obviously a huge, uh, you know, kind of the scourge of the internet, uh, you know, these, these, these past few years for sure. Um, in a, in a former life, uh, I was working at, uh, Cyber Reason, one of those Boston based Israeli startups. Um, and we had a huge focus on ransomware. I, I wrote three different, very in-depth reports about, you know, kind of the state of ransomware. And, and, and we did, you know, the, we did these surveys um, where we found that, you know, it just, it, it didn't, not only is there all the guidance about kind of the why you shouldn't pay, but we, in our survey, we found that more than half of the companies that paid the ransom ended up getting hit a second time. And that most of the time it was by the same threat actors that they were basically like, well, you've already shown a willingness to pay. And, and it was, and it, and it was usually within like a month. So they're like, well, you've shown a willingness to pay. We know you haven't had time to address the problem. <laughs> so we're just going to hit you again and ask for more ransom. Um, 
so uh, yeah, all, all that's a very long way of saying this is uh, obviously a big, a, a big problem that's out there, and one you know one of the other things that we you know that I that I've written about in the past and discussed in the past is just that once the ransomware like payload has been executed, there's no good option, like. Because especially especially now in the current state of, of of ransomware, I mean that 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 by the time your systems are encrypted, that means they've already exfiltrated all the data, which they're not going to extort you with as well. So it's like you can pay the ransom or not pay the ransom, um, but if you say if you try to stand on principle and say I'm going to restore from backup, they've got your data, they can sell it, they can leak it, they can do whatever they want with it. If you pay the ransom, there's a good chance. The decryption tool will be dysfunctional and you won't even get back all of your data you might get part of it back and then ultimately you're relying on the honor of thieves like you don't know that they won't still sell your data <laughs> just because you paid the rent they still have it so just because you paid the ransom doesn't mean you won't find your data on the on the dark web um so given that as you're working with companies and and kind of like your view of the industry as a whole does it seem like anyone has a creative solution to this or or are we just swimming upstream? Yeah, it's a great point and it's such a challenging area um, for, for CISOs and security leaders to tackle. So we have seen actually relatively few solutions that are effective as a single platform for ransomware to detect and prevent ransomware. Um, in general, we find that it's really a layer defense approach is the, is the best approach. So different tools and technologies and processes to make sure, um, you know, to protect yourself as best you can really. So a strong combination of EDR, anti-phishing, network segmentation, data security, um, backup and recovery is extremely important, as well as employee awareness and training um, are really all pieces of the puzzle, I think, to creating a program that is as resilient as possible um, to ransomware threats. But a lot of organizations just don't have that level of maturity to really cover all the bases. Um, to your point about surveys, we did an interesting CISO survey last year at YL Ventures and a report on ransomware um, that I thought was pretty interesting. So from our data, 42% of our respondents had fallen victim to ransomware. And to your point, are put in very difficult positions about what to do and whether to comply um, you know, things like double and triple extortion don't make this any easier. And they're worried, CISOs are worried about the trajectory of future attacks as cyber criminals are continuing to evolve um, and innovate as well and try to maximize their bottom lines. So definitely a huge, um, very top of mind for folks. In terms of solutions, most respondents, um, in general, it was about 60% of the budget that was allocated to uh, prevention and then 40% to recovery and response. So there is a, a bit of a bias toward protecting against and preventing where possible. Um, but security leaders also understand that guaranteed protection is, is not possible. Um, and so you have to be prepared through a strong recovery plan um, to sort of react uh, if and when it happens. Um, and interestingly, 22% of respondents um, reported employing a dedicated anti-ransomware platform um, but then when we dug in a little deeper, these were actually more like features of the existing endpoint security providers um, rather than a specific purpose sort of dedicated anti-ransomware point solution. So it's interesting, despite this being a huge problem and despite um, an abundance of solutions sort of addressing different areas, we haven't found 
a really a one-stop shop that, that, that addresses the whole. Well, I was going to say like, you know, so, so yes, you know, when you, when you said, uh, you know, that it was, it was really just kind of features of, of other platforms and tools they already had in place and not like a, a dedicated ransomware defense. I know there are companies out there that claim to have that, but I'm like, what would that even be? Because I mean, like, like ransomware can come in through basically any threat vector, you know? So it's like, if you said, okay, well, I've made this platform that just blocks ransomware. Like I'm going to, I'm going to defend you against all ransomware. It's like, okay, how is that different than any other EDR, XDR, whatever? Um, You know, you're, you're, you're trying to basically say you're, you're, you're a, you know, Swiss army knife that's going to protect me against everything. Um, the other thing that I thought was, it was interesting is that just recently there was, I forget which threat, which group it was, but one of the, uh, ransomware groups used the new SEC rules against their victim by outing them <laughs> by their, you know, so they're like, oh, well, you didn't pay the ransom fast enough. Well, we're going to let the SEC know that you didn't report this, this breach. <laughs> Absolutely. I heard about that one as well. It's terrible. Yeah. And, and, you know, you mentioned like, you know, single, double, triple extortion, you know, one of the, one of the trends I've seen over the last, like, I don't know, 18 months was this, this, it, it almost doesn't even fit the term ransomware anymore because they went to, they went from the double extortion of we're going to steal your data to hold it as a, as a, a ransom for an extra leverage of extortion to what if we just don't encrypt your data? What if we just steal the data and we ransom that? Um, which when I first saw that, I think the first time I saw it was like the end of 2021, there was an attack. And I immediately thought, yeah, that's brilliant from the threat actor's perspective because ransomware is noisy or it can be. Um, you know, if, you know, you, when you shut down Colonial Pipeline and, and you block oil production on the entire eastern seaboard, that that tends to draw attention and not the kind of attention you want in, in some cases. So it's like, well, if I can if I can take your data and I can extort you. But it's all kind of hush hush behind the scenes. It's a lot easier for me to it's a lot, a lot easier for the victims to then pay the ransom because they, you know, there's there's the. I don't know, moral and ethical quandary of, of paying the ransom. Um, because, because one of the other things that a lot of people don't consider when paying the ransom is it actually, there's, there's actually a fair chance that you're violating some international law or sanctions, because depending on who you're paying that money to, you're either sending money to a country you shouldn't be sending money to, you're sending money to, you know, organizations that are known terrorists, like whatever, whatever it is, you're, you're, you're actually violating the law in some way by sending the ransom in a lot of cases. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's, it's such a hard problem to solve. There are some interesting approaches around basically defanging customer data through encryption and other means um, so that basically the attackers have nothing to steal. You know, it's like kind of defeats the whole purpose of even um, you know being a target of ransomware, which I think is particularly interesting. Um, and I think there's also a lot of value in, you know, backup and recovery. I think it's not um, super sexy, uh, but it is crucial to getting your systems back up and running. And I'm, I'm hopeful that through combinations of um, the recovery and response piece, 
Um, of course, we'll always go for prevention where we can, but I do think it's important to keep each element in mind um, and, and ideally, you know, diffuse, um, diffuse the value as much as possible so you're not a target. Yeah. Um, so I also wanted to ask about phishing, and I think there's, a, there's definitely a tie-in there. I mean, so phishing, I would say, is next to ransomware, the other, like, primary thing that a lot of organizations are worried about on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and the phishing is oftentimes the pathway to the ransomware. <laughs> um, uh, that, that, that's the way in. Um, you know, we've had, we just crossed the one-year anniversary of the you know, public launch of ChatGPT. This entire past year has been nothing but generative AI all day, every day. Um, I mean, I've covered generative AI a hundred different ways. Um, and, you know, Im immediately, like one of the first things everyone talked about was what that was going to do to transform phishing. That now, instead of me getting some broken English, doesn't even make sense uh, message, the threat actors can now say, hey, ChatGPT, you know, write me this, write me this uh, message to this person. Um, and it, and it should be better. And I, and I, I've not seen like hard data, but anecdotally speaking, I've, I've heard people say that, yes, there has been a, 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 a rise in the volume and a rise in the quality of phishing. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is one of the more, um, more obvious sort of applications, like you said, of the ChatGPT technology is both the ability to do it at scale, like you mentioned, not having to have a human write each particular prompt and being able to make it customized by the way to the target by automatically pulling things from your LinkedIn profile or you know topics you referenced in a, in a prior talk. These things can be very convincing. Um, and, and like you said, at scale um, is definitely an issue. And I think as we think about the AI generated attacks, um, you know, you have to assume we, we have to meet that threat with AI generated de defense as well. Um, and I think there are interesting phishing detection technologies that will hopefully allow us to better detect phishing emails or detect AI generated content more accurately. Um, of course, it's not 100% bulletproof. It's very much um, new territory. So I think that it does underscore for me the importance of employee training as well. Um, we talk about technology and people all the time. And I think the answer is both. Um, and people need to be a huge part of your defense there as well. Um, and I think another another piece related to phishing is potential for data and IP loss um, through ChatGPT and other Gen AI tools um, sort of related to, to that, but a little bit different, especially in areas like healthcare or finance with PII, PHI, PCI, et cetera. Um, I think that's something that we've already seen bad actors exfiltrating data from those platforms um, based on, you know, employee mistakes that way. So also underscoring the importance of um, employee training just to, to think through, you know, do I want to press that button? Yeah. Well, and I, I actually have a kind of an interesting perspective on phishing because um, I am tech-spective, you know, so like, yeah, yes, it's the website, but I am, I'm it, I'm the whole company. Um, and I get emails all the time, like multiple times a week of, hey, this is TechSpective HR. Here's a link to your you know, payroll statement. Hey, this is you know, TechSpective uh, IT support. You need to reset your password. Um, you know, you know, just all kinds of stuff like that. Or, hey, 
you got a fax. I'm like, no, I didn't. It's not 2005. I did <laughs> like, um, you know, and, and so lots of things like that or, or voicemail, you know, like, oh, oh here, 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 you got this voicemail. I'm like, well, no, because I don't have any such system. So, but those are things that are easy for me to dismiss because I'm the whole company. Whereas if I was an employee in a 10,000 person company and I get an email that says that it's from HR about my payroll, I'm likely to click on that. <laughs> That's such a good point. Yeah, diffuse responsibility within an organization really magnifies the problem, especially when you, you can't check in, you know, just slap the person next to you or, or whatever. Much more difficult. Um, so one of the things that I think this is especially in, in your role and, and, and kind of the broader role of Wild Ventures, I think this is relevant, but, you know, uh, we, we have like a, you know, basically a very global economy that, you know, technology is, is very global. Even if you think, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're buying something from whatever it was, it was you know, manufactured in this country. It's like, okay, but it has parts and components and, and whatever from around the world. So it's just, it's just the state of the world we're in. On the other side of that, you have things like you know, Russia invading Ukraine or the Israeli Hamas conflict going on, um, you know, the earthquakes and tsunamis in, in, uh, in, in, in the South Pacific and, you know, all these things that happen, whether it's hurricanes and, and wildfires and et cetera, that impact the ability to move goods from point A to point B for people to get online from point A. Um, so like, I guess you know what what is your insight on that and like it, it, the guidance for like how do I balance if I'm if I'm a, if I'm a company and I want to I want to be part of this global economy um and take advantage of it but I also want to hedge against the risk and and be able to be resilient if a company that's a partner of mine on on the other side of the world is dealing with a flood or an earthquake and is not available my company still needs to carry on. Certainly, yeah, and though in, in this global environment, everything's interconnected. And, you know, we've seen and we know that markets will inevitably react to these global events. Um, and it can create periods of, of certainly uncertainty and, and difficult times. You know, I work with a tremendous amount of Israeli entrepreneurs who are obviously been facing a lot of disruption recently. Um, but I'll also say that these are truly some of the most brilliant and resilient and um, just agile folks I've, I've ever had the, the pleasure of working with and their ability to stay laser focused on their customers, continue to deliver no matter what um, has been really inspiring to me personally. So I think part of it is, you know, taking on the challenges um, and, and being adaptable. But there's also an element of diversification. So, for example, with our portfolio companies, um, while the R&D teams are typically stationed in Israel, um, a lot of times the go-to-market folks, so sales and marketing, the CEO, maybe customer success, is located in the U.S. or the EU. Um, so that really helps um, maintain business continuity, particularly for the customer-facing activities, which is very important. And then I think from a macro perspective, I mean, certainly we've seen um, we've seen disruption in the short term, but I think thinking about the Israeli Hamas war specifically, this will only increase the, the need for cybersecurity solutions over the longer term. And I think that 
the companies that weather this storm um, are going to emerge stronger. And the Israeli um, cybersecurity industry in particular has built this really well-deserved reputation for cutting-edge technology, um, you know, really dogged focus on their customers, and continuing to um, provide innovation for this rapidly evolving landscape of different cybersecurity threats. Um, yeah. Well, and, you know, when I talked, I don't know, a month or so ago uh, with Yoav, and we talked sp more specifically about in the re resilience during the Israeli uh, you know, Hamas conflict. Um, you know, one of the things he emphasized and stressed was kind of it was kind of the community around you, you know, and, 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 and in your case, specifically, you know, having a partner like Wild Ventures. But if it's not Wild Ventures, just having other partners who are willing to step up, you know, so it's so whether it's whether it's you're a global company and you've got an office in New York and you've got another office in London and you've got another office in Hong Kong and being able to like offset things where you're like, oh, well, that office is dealing with a, a hurricane, you know, so the other two offices will pick up the slack or a situation where you're, you're you know, you've got, you know, you've just got partners like, like Wild Ventures where you say, okay, hey, listen, we're dealing with some stuff. And we're 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 not going to be able to get stuff done the way we normally do. But having someone who's willing to say, "Okay, well, how can I help? What can I do to pick up some of that slack?" Absolutely. And I really view my role as an investor and a partner as being in the trenches with our companies and really trying to take as much of the burden off as we possibly can in times like these. And particularly for things like go to market, um, I think we can be we can be helpful and sort of all row in the same direction. So I think it's about constant communication. It's about being vulnerable when you do need help and sort of reaching out um, and just sort of continuing to band together and and weather the storm. So, um, yeah, but I do think over the long term, um, I'm very excited and, and energized and bullish on, on the market. Okay, which is an excellent segue to my next question. Um, because, you know, there's been, you know, just... Billions upon billions upon billions of dollars get tossed around in in you know the world in general, but definitely in the cybersecurity industry. And you know, and, and again, I was I was at Cyber Reason when we got you know three hundred and twenty five million dollars at the same time that you know Lacework was getting like a billion dollars, and you know they're just you know, massive amounts of money were flowing in. Next thing you know, I, I I mean Cyber Reason still technically exists, but it's definitely flying on fumes and and they went from 1500 employees to probably a couple hundred now I don't I don't I really don't know I, you know they they laid off a lot of people lacework laid off a lot of people so it's like having that influx of cash didn't save them per se um you know it it actually to some extent might have introduced problems <laughs> because all of a sudden not only do you have a a a, a kind of a slowdown you know, or in, in the economic market in general, but you've also got investors to answer to, um, which, I, you know, kind of compounds the problem. So I guess my, my the, the question out of all this is just sort of, how do you see this going forward? Like, was that, was, was the heyday of, of cybersecurity investment like overblown and this is partly a correction to that or is this just a little hiccup and we'll kind of get back to the the regularly scheduled uh, programming soon um 
because yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I, I do still see news every once in a while. You know, I get, I get pitches where it's like, Hey, you know, we got our a round, you know, we've got, you know, there is still funding going on. Just not, I think the, the volume or the amounts that I was seeing previously, but then on the flip side, you've got things like, you know, Cisco tossing $30 billion out to, to buy Splunk. I mean, so there's, there's, there's money out there. Yeah, certainly. Certainly. So the, the, the economic downturn um, has affected us all. And in particular, you know, it does make investors wary of taking risks, particularly when they're at higher valuations. And the biggest thing is they want to make sure that startups can back those valuations up with real ARR and positive market traction before they invest. Um, I will say this hesitance tends to affect the late stage funding rounds at the highest valuations first and sort of work its way back from the IPO markets to the early stages where where we place. So um, we've been a bit more insulated just as a result of being so early um, and having longer timelines and sort of more of a more more time to build. Um, but it's been a difficult market and we're certainly coaching our portfolio companies. Um, on a couple of ways to adapt. So one was um, probably 18 months ago, we went through an exercise with our companies of looking at runway, looking at burn, thinking about, to your point, being efficient with the capital that we have and um, being thoughtful about spending. Um, and, and of course, wanting to grow and invest in um, the important things like R&D and sales, but but not being wasteful, You know, being being responsible stewards of capital. Um, and another piece of the puzzle, really the, the piece that always stands out with investors is real market traction. So um, we're laser focused on helping our companies hit defensible customer acquisition, ARR, ARR milestones ahead of a Series A or any subsequent fundraise. Um, and we have boots on the ground here, um, myself, uh, marketing and HR teams, operating partners, a CISO in residence, and sort of a whole suite of support to um, to, to really help supercharge our founders and help them hit those milestones. Um, but I'll also say, you know, for the, the market for cybersecurity solutions is not going away. Um, and the Israeli innovation market has really been proven as a great source for um, new and innovative approaches. Um, and I think that investors will also be, will always be interested and supporting founders who show that longevity, show that um, responsibility of being a good steward of capital, and show an interest in being a market leader, you know, have really big dreams and a big vision. And so I, I tend to think, um, obviously I'm biased, but with support and guidance from the right partners, um, that cybersecurity startups will be able to weather this the storm right now. Yeah. Okay. Well, and like I'm, I'm not even going to pretend to really understand uh, finance. But the little bit that I do know says that the VCs at whatever stage they are ultimately don't want to sit on their money. You know, it's like that that's not the purpose of having the money or being a VC. The purpose is to grow it and you can't grow it by sitting on it. So, you know, at some point I would I would think you, you have to open the floodgates again. And, you know, even if you're a little bit more cautious about it, you want your you want your money in the game. Absolutely. And we have a responsibility to deliver returns for our LPs. And the only way to do that is to deploy capital in great companies. Awesome. Um, all right. Well, I mean, I don't I, I don't have any other questions. Um, is there anything else you wanted to talk about that we didn't hit on? 
No, it's been super interesting. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for the time. Thank you for your time. I appreciate you investing your time to listen to the podcast, but I also invite you to engage on social media. Uh, please go like our Facebook page and follow at Techspective on Twitter and Instagram. You can feel free to let me know what you like, let me know what you don't like, let me know if you love it, let me know if it sucks, and uh, let me know what products you'd like to see reviewed or what uh, questions you'd like to see answered in future posts.